The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion hosted by Michael Guyot. Let me set the stage for everybody that's joining. My name is Michael Guyad. I am the publisher of the Lead Lag Report and our special guest for the hour, Carson Block. So, Carson, I appreciate that you're spending the hour with us here. Hopefully we'll get a good uh, good attendance. So I was reviewing several of your media appearances, and I love the way that you think. I really do. So, so let's first set the stage on who you are, your background, for those who are not familiar with uh, your experience. Talk about Talk about your background overall, please. So, uh, yeah, I got to the short side by once upon a time being on the long side. You know, I, I'll, I'll try not to go too far in the weeds, but I think in some cases, uh, many cases maybe, if you're doing what I do, you're kind of almost born that way. I mean, growing up, you know, my parents got divorced at a young age, but I lived in a town where, you know, it seemed like everybody, you know, had a you know, country club membership and second home and, you know, the fam, the family seemed very intact and, you know, and I was kind of shunned, you know, because of the divorce, other, you know, other familial issues that were occurring. So I grew up watching many respects, the really pretty people from the outside and everybody's father worked on wall street, including mine. And uh, I guess by the time I graduated high school, I'd, you know, come to see a lot of hypocrisy there, you know, so these, these kids who came from these families that seemingly had everything and were, you know, intact, and it's like, by the time we're in high school, having conversations about, you know, how like, parents are alcoholics, and they barely have any money, and the kid needs to get a scholarship somewhere. So it really gave me an appreciation for, you know, like, as again, as I said, I mean, these were very much bread and butter kind of um, Wall Street families and, you know, fathers being bankers that gave me an appreciation for just how much illusion could be there. But, um, you know, I went to USC, studied finance, was really interested in China. I went to China right after I graduated in 98, trying to open up an Asia research firm. I figured out I was at least 10 years too early, came back to the States, did banking, um, at a large bank, you know, for a little while, hated it. And then I, I teamed up with my father. So he was a, he was a, basically a sell-side equity analyst covering U.S.-centric microcaps and between and small caps. And so between 99 and 02, we were working together, and we avoided 
the internet companies that we knew it was a bubble, you know, we knew that it didn't make sense, but nonetheless, we had some really bad experiences where we had just been lied to by a parade of managements. And again, these were smaller U.S. companies, but, you know, at the same time, I mean, who else was blowing up? Enron, WorldCom, HealthSouth, Tyco. Seemed like top to bottom, the market was riddled with predatory managements. And it was very disillusioning to me because I wanted to be an investor. Um, I pretty much wanted that since seventh grade when you know I was realistic about my lack of you know baseball talent. And um, yeah, so I went to law school thinking that would give me some tools that I could use to protect myself against predatory business people and managements. Really enjoyed law school more than I thought I would, so I decided I'll practice for a little bit, and that'll give me even more tools in my toolbox. So uh, I practiced for a year and change in China with a large U.S. law firm, and I left and, you know, ultimately started the first self-storage business in mainland China. You know, I mean, I built these really pretty financial models and we were going to be huge and, you know, raise money and venture and then go public. And um, I guess lesson number, you know, one was that businesses are not actually driven financial models. And that really offended me as a finance person that my model couldn't bend reality to its will. But I also learned that, I mean, just so much about businesses and how really they're, you know, they truly are these organic, these organisms that are some of the people. So, you know, I was trying not to fail. It was hard. We got pushed to the brink a few times. And I also saw just how easily perceptions were manipulated in China. Um, I just had crazy experiences where, you know, the, the people who owned the office park where we put our facility didn't actually own it. And they were stealing like, you know, eight figures from, you know, from like local governments and state-owned enterprises. And, you know, like everything had been a facade. And so as this was happening, my father got really interested in these Chinese companies. Uh, so this is 2009, 2010, got really interested in these Chinese companies that had listed in the U.S., uh, by reverse merger. And I've been out of the market to that point for a number of years. I honestly didn't really give a shit because I was just struggling to keep my own stuff, you know, from failing too badly. But it was my father. So he asked me to look at this one company called Orient Paper. And he said, you know, oh, I went to the Roth Capital Conference and, oh, they say Chairman Leo is different from other Chinese company chairman because, you know, he doesn't drink, smoke, or chase women. You know, and I'm thinking like, A, I'm sure zero of that is true, but B, it's actually a little alarming that there's the, that people are propagating this because it does indicate that somebody is attempting to game U.S. investor psychology. But, you know, look, I mean, they just switched auditors to BDO Limited out of Hong Kong. And I still lived in this universe that I think 99% of investors do, which is like you, you mistakenly, it turns out, think that auditors are there looking for fraud and that that's their function. So, you know, I had no reason to believe that the numbers were, you know, not like the revenue numbers were not real. My question, my inquiry in helping my father out 
was going to focus on whether this guy was stealing an unacceptably large amount of money from the company or whether it's the, you know, you can live with it amount of money. But, you know, I, I once I started looking through the filings the day before I went up there in early January 2010, I'm just like my jaws on the floor. I mean, the, like everything I'm reading seems wrong. Like the numbers that they claim to pay for real estate and construction costs, the fact that they're growing their top line at like 50, 60 percent a year, but they're losing seven or eight of their top 10 customers each time. It's just you know, there, there was some serious, serious issues. So when I got there, uh, we saw the Temkin factory. I mean, it was at each turn, I was shocked at how much worse this was than what I, you know, than what I previously been thinking. So got back to Shanghai, um, called my father and I said, I've never seen anything like this. You know, it's, it's a sure thing. It's going to zero. And my father had no interest in shorting it. He'd never shorted anything in his life. And I looked around, you know, I, I mean, I was broke as a joke at that time. Like, I mean, I was piling up, you know, six-figure debt now to my father. And so I was looking around, you know, talking to people and, you know, who were on the buy side, seeing if I could work something out where I publish a short report and, you know, they give me a percentage of profit. And man, like everybody scurried like roaches under the lights, you know, like, I mean, people who were friends of mine were saying, look, you know, and compliance department said, I'm never even supposed to talk to you again, you know, so I, I shouldn't be doing this, but I'm just telling you like, it's a no. So I kind of gave up on it since the 10 K was supposed to be filed in mid March. And I just thought, well, you know, I think this is like what I used to see, you know, when I was like around Wall Street growing up on Wall Street, you know, microcap Wall Street in the 90s. So this is probably some mafia pump and dump thing, you know, Chinese mafia triads meet up with like, you know, Italian guys from New York. And this thing's probably going to be over by mid-March because they've got a real auditor. So I just, you know, filed it away. But then in early April, um, Something compelled me to just take a look uh, and see where, you know, like where it was trading. I was expecting to see the stock was halted, but lo and behold, it still had the same market cap, like 150 million that it had had, you know, prior when I, you know, in January. And I was floored. And they'd gotten an unqualified audit opinion from BDO Hong Kong. And I was just was like, how could that be? How could the auditor have missed this? So as a side project, I began putting this report together, exposing it as a fraud. And it just like, I didn't, I didn't know what the purpose was, but you know, one, one thing that this experience made me realize is that, you know, in life there is a power in having nothing to lose. Right. I mean, I just, my business wasn't going anywhere. And so I figured, fuck it, let me throw the ball as far down the field as I can. And so I ended up sending this report out, end of June, 2010, when I was a guy sitting in like a, you know, tiny self-storage warehouse in Shanghai with like no, you know, no future that I could foresee that was going to be markedly better. One year later, Bloomberg named me one of the 50 most influential in global finance with like Ben Bernanke, Warren Buffett, Christine Lagarde, et cetera. So it was like winning the lottery. You know, I guess the final, the final thing I'll say here was this was really eye-opening to me because it's like I'd been saying shit my whole life that made people uncomfortable. I've been pointing out hypocrisy, you know, and again, that made people uncomfortable. But here we were in the financial markets, and 
there's actually, you know, an appetite for that. Like people, people are a lot more pragmatic about their money than any other part of their lives. Um, although, you know, I'd say that pragmatism has been, you know, slipping away since the financial crisis. But, you know, I could make money by basically doing the things that made people feel uncomfortable that I was felt compelled to do my whole life. So that's how I built this business. Okay, so there's a there's a lot to unpack there. Let's first go go into the sort of the the reasons that are valid and the reasons that are not valid when it comes to short. Right. So there's people that short for speculative reasons, people that do it for hedging, people that do it for technical reasons based on short interest. Your approach is much more focusing on where there seems to be some degree of fraud or, or a lot of fraud. Right. So you're really betting on the idea that the company does go bankrupt. Is that is that a fair We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Gayad here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the Lead Lag Report. And now, back to our discussion. Well, I'd say, you know, that that's what a lot of people think on the surface. I mean, probably two-thirds to three-quarters of what we do I'd say are not frauds from a legal perspective. They are intellectually fraudulent, but you know it falls under the umbrella of financial engineering. So this is where auditors become complicit, right? Where they're like, "Well, gee, you know, that's a little aggressive, but you know, like let's get your counsel on the phone with our counsel, and together they can work on some disclosure. You know, as long as we feel we have our bases covered and." Your counsel is basically going to try to write it in the most innocuous and confusing way. And, you know, once we get the two to agree, like, we're cool. We'll issue an unqualified audit opinion. So that is, I'd say, the heart of what we do. So not everything results in a delisting. I mean, um, you know, if you look at a company that's really, you know, fallen apart recently uh, that we shorted in spring of 2020, eHealth. I mean, you know, look, there's no illegal conduct there. It was just, you know, they were they were very aggressive in their use of a newly promulgated accounting standard. And, you know, like investors were just confused by this. And so we spent the time to dig through it and say, this is what's really going on in terms of the economics. So the, there are really three questions that and you, you have to separate what we do as, as activist short sellers from traditional or non-activist short sellers. Um, like that's a niche and we are a niche of a niche. But, you know, I basically ask three questions. It's like, okay, is number one, has the company... You know, has the information, the material information the company released to the market been accurate or truthful or, you know, uh, appropriate, appropriate, appropriately presenting the facts? One, has the company failed to release material information? So the first one you can think of in a simple sense as a lie of commission. The second one would be a lie of omission. And then the third question I ask 
is whether the market can under, is understanding accurately the information the company has released. And, you know, a great example of that would be biotech with um, trial data, you know, because like there's a lot of nuance there. So if we can answer no to at least one of those questions, there might be something to do. But, you know, where we thrive as active as short sellers is in these information, in these situations in which there's information asymmetry. Asymmetry is created by complexity, the amount of work it takes to really get into it, um, diverse skill sets needed to really piece it together. So as activists, we then, you know, look to, once we've shorted it, we look to eliminate the information asymmetry by saying, okay, look, this is, this is what's really going on here. And so it really for us is a almost entirely backward looking exercise. You know, it's like, we're not, we're not sitting here building models and trying to figure out, you know, what earnings are going to be and stuff like that. I mean, that's, that's what the vast majority of investors do is they're trying to, they're thinking about the future that's rare for us. We're just saying, look, the past is materially different from how you understood it to be. Therefore, we're hoping that investors will extrapolate that the future is less rosy than they thought it would be. Is that, are there certain sectors or industries where there's more, there's more aptness for that complexity, where there's more of that asymmetry of information when it comes to looking at the U.S. market? Well, I mean, so well, okay, U.S. market. I was I was about to talk about China and emerging markets. Yeah, um, let's talk about that too. Let's talk about the emerging markets too. But I'm I'm curious about the U.S. side where the standards are higher, and then looking outside the U.S. No, I mean, look, the you know, I I mean, from a macro perspective, the only time we really have gotten thematic. Um, somewhat was when looking at uh, physical commodity traders. There was a lot of abusive, uh, largely legal accounting back then. I mean, these aren't necessarily U.S. listed, but you know, we shorted something in, that was Singapore listed called Olam in 2012. Then um, Hong Kong listed Noble Group a few years after that, and that's at the time that Glencore, you know, was was on the brink. Um, so you know, Glencore and the other uh, major trading houses, they were partly victims of. Um, I mean. Well, I shouldn't say victims, but, you know, on the back of misleading accounts, aggressive accounting, they moved on a lot of debt. And, you know, this this came home to roost. I mean, Noble went bankrupt. Olam had to be acquired by Tomasa. Effectively, you know, Tomasa owns, I think, 90 percent of the, uh, you know, what was the float. Um, and Glencore almost went BK. And I think one or two other commodities houses did. Um, the only other theme that. You know, and this and look, there are other people in active short selling who maybe are more thematic. Um, you know, you could throw a dart, and like nine of ten darts, you know, you throw. I mean, are going to be companies that will be, you know, the low single digits within a few years. But I mean, that's not that's obviously not you know an activist short case, and you could lose a lot of money in the meantime. But we, I originally had thought that that was a bad area for activist short selling because. You know, if we trot out our scientists and they argue with the company scientist about the efficacy of the molecule, like that's just not a way, you know, it's like arguing about the existence of God, right? Like you just can't prove it. But when we did start to look at trial data, especially these biotech companies that um, do these trials without control arms, I mean, almost all, like they'll say, and I mean, some 
is believable that the condition is too rare to really have a control group or they've already been through the primary and secondary lines of treatment and you know you have to they feel a moral obligation to give everybody the 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 drug that's being uh, trialed but you know i'd say a lot of times it's also very self-serving it's not an efficacious drug the trial data is much easier to obscure when there's no control arm so if we see if we see that you know that's something where maybe there's something you know where maybe there's something to do but just as i said having those public arguments in biotech land you know, we we had a we did short something called Prothena 2017, and that was the thesis. We said, look, the when you actually look at what the washout period from the frontline treatment should be, actually there's no efficacy demonstrated by these trial results. And we were talking with one of the cell side analysts um, about this. And before we published, uh, maybe it's after I don't remember, but we we're explaining this to them and walking them through it, and and it was just pretty clear and obvious that. The trial results, the data that have been released did not show efficacy. And his response is, well, that's the magic of biotech. So it's hard to have that argument. So, yeah, I, I, in general, we're not thematic. I mean, Europe is another place where that's the only other time we got somewhat thematic. And the reason for that is there's just been so much dysfunction that's been allowed to fester there. I mean, their bank absence, financial crisis have not been as focused on um, you know, like cleaning up the balance sheets. I mean, there is a lot more extend and pretend there. And and there's just a real reluctance to criticize people in Europe. That's as close as we've come to being thematic. You know, I guess the, you know, this is where I go back to what we do is it's different from the um, traditional short sellers. I mean, the, the traditional short sellers, most of them have gone out of business uh, since the financial crisis, or at least the people who were running, you know, who are, you know, pure short or running, you know, their, their mandate is to run net short by a reasonable margin. Most of them have gotten carried out. And, you know, a lot of times, I mean, looking back, I think the theses were correct, but, you know, they were always looking at this catalyst, right? Like it's, yeah, this quarter, this is when the wheels are going to fall off. Like, yeah, they can't make it through this quarter without, you know, and, the reality is these companies usually did, and that that's a reflection, I think, largely of the you know free money environment that we've been in since the financial crisis, where debt allows companies. I mean, debt is what makes these theses come true ultimately. You know, especially the fundamental uh, melting ice cube type of theses. But you know, with debt being so cheap and so plentiful, and you know, and like covenants just being passe. You know, a lot of these companies are able to string out their, you know, their their catalysts, uh, their quarters of reckoning by years. You know, it, a lot of times it ultimately happened where, you know, the, the thesis was vindicated, but, you know, the guys who shorted it were no longer in business. So I've seen a lot of that. I mean, for, for us as activist short sellers, I mean, we're, you know, we lay it out for the market to play it out. I mean, I, I like to think, I hope that what we put out is, you know, is going to be deemed relevant. And, you know, for us, the idea is that we want to create a lot of scrutiny on the company through, you know, through our, our reporting and our campaigns. Like we want the long investors to start pushing management for, you know, whereas they would give management's past previously when they wouldn't disclose things and say, well, you know, we don't talk about that. You know, like 
the long side guys want to maintain good relationships and they'll say, well, okay, that's cool. But now we bring it up and now we say, Hey, look, we think that what's going on really is X, Y, Z. And if we are successful as short activists, that long investor, you know, says, no, I'm not moving on from that question right now. Like you really, we really should know what this is. So that's, that's what we're trying to do as short activists. We're trying to release information that effectively acts as catalyst for more information disclosures that, you know, we think will not be helpful to the company. We'll be back after a quick break. Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce. Food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So, how do you dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now. So, so how do you know when you're wrong with a short position? Because you alluded to this idea that a lot of these short sellers which are no longer around may have just been early and right, but again, they, they could stick it out. So how do you know if a thesis is wrong when you're looking at a Well, I mean, I guess there's, you know, the first thing is if you're going to be a short seller, you have to accept that you can be right, but lose money. So again, for you know, for what we do, since it's backward looking, I would say that it's a lot harder to be wrong about, you know, when we're talking about, okay, I'm short this company for X, Y, Z reasons. When you're talking about things that did or did not happen, history, provided you've done your work, it's a lot harder to be wrong than when you're saying, I think, you know, that earnings are going to be blah, 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 or the competition is going to, you know, eat their lunch. So for us, you know, what the things that we get, you know, wrong, I guess, when we lose money are whether it matters. I mean, sometimes, you know, what we're talking about just isn't, you know, the long side just doesn't care. And sometimes, honestly, I I think sometimes it can be the substance where, you know, it just, it just doesn't matter. But sometimes it can be the presentation of it where, you know, and I learned this, um, I mean, one of our worst all-time calls was on American Tower. That was back in 2013. And it was like a 30 billion market cap at the time, which was very big for us. I mean, would, would still be big for us. I mean, look, one of the things that we had turned up was they bought a tower portfolio in Brazil and it looked like, you know, roughly half that per, you know, that reported purchase price to roughly about $250 million was somehow siphoned off from that purchase. And I felt like, you know, that's pretty material. And we found a, no, a number of other problems with, you know, cause they had basically in a paroxysm of growth, they had just decided to go overseas, like simultaneously into nine emerging and frontier market countries, if I remember correctly. And we found a number of other issues, but we also, you know, but we went into a lot of other areas where, we're like, look, self tower is not assailable. There's going to be, you know, data offload to Wi-Fi networks, and you know, like that's something that's very fundamental. And we were, you know, I think we were wrong about that. But on the presentation side, 
I remember speaking to the largest shareholders. Um, these were long onlys. And these were, you know, like I'd spoken to other PMs and analysts at these firms previously with respect to China names. And I couldn't believe how uninformed their China people were. So I was expecting, you know, just more blithe incompetence. But I found was, you know, on a name like American Tower, something that was larger cap, like this is the A team I was talking to. And when I started going into these fundamental issues in the report on industry direction, they understood the industry. They had strong views on that. And, you know, and I think I discredited everything else in the report, particularly when we were pointing out the, you know, where we thought the areas of fraud were misrepresentation. We discredited it by, you know, packaging it with fundamental statements that were really us, you know, like straying from our lane. So I think sometimes the problem could be presentation, but yeah, there are times just doesn't matter. I mean, uh, Andrew left of Citron Research, another short activist. Um, you know, I, I interviewed him on my platform uh, called Zeros TV um, on a little over a year ago. And Andrew made the point that when you're shorting something, I mean, th- this is a very, you know, this is a very salient point for, you know, traditional short sellers. He's like, look, a lot of times guys short something because they think, oh, they're going to blow the quarter. Like, you know, it's going to be a horrible quarter. And what they don't understand is that the long side of that, you know, like Steve Mandel or, you know, Philippe LaFont, these are smart guys and they don't really care about the next quarter or couple of quarters. They've got a three-year view or five-year view. So he's the way Andrew put it is, if you're shorting a company for a different reason than those guys are long it, you're probably going to lose. And so I think sometimes, you know, from a substantive perspective, we've run into that wall too, where we think it really matters. But, you know, the the, the people, the, the major shareholders who are, are smart money, it just doesn't move the needle for them. You know, with FD, um, that, that was promulgated when I was working with my father in the early 2000s. And back then, as a long side guy in microcap space, it was really frustrating. A lot of companies were scared to talk about the sell side. They're like, ah, oh, you know, our lawyers are telling us we can't tell you any substance or else we'd you know, have to put a press release out. And, you know, look, I found that by the time I came back to, to things here in you know, 2010, that nobody was afraid of Reg FD, right? Like none of the companies take it seriously. I don't think there's ever been any enforcement or, you know, any enforcement against a new that stung at all. So I think that companies still are fairly selective um, in their disclosures. Now, I don't say that with firsthand experience because I mean, we're not calling up companies saying, hey, we're Murphy Waters and we'd like to talk to you. Uh, but we, you know, I, I have other entities I own that, you know, we, that we use off of those conversations because obviously if we say we're muddy waters, I think we're going to get a very different picture than the other investor uh, would get. So um, most of the information we get, we have to get um, outside of, you know, like asking company questions. You know, one of the backbone things we, it's into it in the U S because they're not available, but if you're looking at a company, have entities, 
overseas that are material, you can get financials or some pretty granular information on, you know, entities in most foreign countries. So, you know, we'll dig through all of these European and, you know, Brazilian, Indian, whatever it is, file, um, you know, and we don't need to ask the company questions uh, for, for stuff like that. You know, for me, when I consider ETFs, what, you know, what I really look at, what, you know, used to be that, you know, it was 2010 through 2013, um, if you had a really good short thesis, you know, especially if this company is a fraud, that was good enough. But, you know, now there's so many uh, passive flows that, and especially if, you know, there, especially if there's, you know, an area like ESG that a company is considered to be part of, um, that's where ETFs become like a big problem for us, right? And so we have to, whenever we're looking at something, we have we look at the at the shareholder table, and you know, historically we prefer something that's more institutional than retail because you know we depend on people reading what we write and, and caring about it, and you know we think institutional is more likely to do it and better suited to understand it, um, but. You know, like, yeah, now when we look at these ETFs, we're like, oh, man, you know, we got a bunch of these, you know, like ESG ETFs in here. Is there anybody who really who matter in the shareholder table in terms of size who would stop and make a fundamental decision uh, based on that? So obviously I'm referring to ETFs that are indexers as opposed to pure active management like Kathy Wood. But, um, yeah, so, I mean, that's, you know, to... You know, and I, and I would say, look, that's the one the one area that I've really spent time trying to understand better and coming up the curve since 2020 is just understanding flow dynamics in the markets. And you know, I'd come, I had come to the view, at least until fourth quarter, that fundamentals really mattered only on the margins because you have so much passive out there, and um, you know, especially in the form of ETFs. You know, we've had we've had some discussion about a, a company that's in a space where there's a lot of passive and ETF ownership. Um, and, you know, and that, I mean, that's kind of the point that I keep, you know, pounding the table on is like, guys, I don't know. Like, I'm not, you know, like we, I'm not sure, I'm not comfortable yet that there that there's enough, there are enough active shareholders here for us to really justify doing all this work. So um, that's actually a, uh, a very germane uh, point right now. So, yeah. Obviously, floats are, you know, they're double-edged swords, right? Like, if, if you have a relatively small float and everybody's going to turn to a seller, you know, that's helpful. But, yeah, I mean, for us, one of the main things we look at is liquidity. I mean, we, you know, because we try to size, depending on, we have two funds, and we try to size, you know, more or less one day of average volume. Um, and if that's you know, if that's too low, I mean, you know, for it to move the needle for us, then it's just not interesting. So, yeah, you know, you don't see a lot of stuff that has relatively small float and high liquidity. I mean, so we we have had, um, you know, we we've been approached by um, some ETF service providers in the past, and you know, and had these conversations. But I think in terms of business model, it. It just doesn't match because what we do, I mean, we're going to speak four to six times a year. And, um, 
you know, so we, it's, it's a very, it's a very idiosyncratic um, investment industry model. Um, so, you know, obviously if we're doing an ETF, um, you know, we need to have a lot more diversification than like short, you know, handful of names and, you know, PS, you're not holding them for a year. I mean, with shorts, you don't want to hold them a long time. You don't want to pay those borrow fees and subject yourself to that asymmetric, you know, squeeze risk. So, um, at any given time, that would be like maybe two to three names in the book. And, um, you know, so what that basically meant was, okay, then we'd have to be out there doing that kind of, you know, traditional short selling, you know, Hey, we're looking for melting ice cubes and, you know, we think that we, you know, have a better understanding of the future than the guys on the long side. And, you know, when, when, when you're in that zone, I mean, again, vast, vast majority of short sellers who were, you know, were running size for people, you know, investors who were running size on the short book based on that have been carried out where they stopped doing it. And, you know, I feel like there's, you know, there's so little edge in the traditional short selling model um, today that, you know, it's like, okay, you know, maybe because we're, you know, brand and maybe there'd be institutions, guys running long books say like, oh, this is a great way to hedge. I'll buy the Muddy Waters ETF, you know, but I, I never wanted, you know, so like from a business perspective, I could probably put more money in my pocket that way. But from a perspective of, this is what I'm about and this is not what I'm about. Like, I don't want to run a product, the goal of which is to lose less than, you know, like then the market goes up, you know, like I'm not, I'm not going to be somebody who's like, Oh wow, we only lost 15%. The market went up 20%. That's five, you know, 500 basis points of alpha, you know, way to go. Like that doesn't make me feel good. So that's basically why we've never gone down that path. In terms of making presentations um, to enforcement in the past on on frauds, I mean the the reality is that the way you make your career in an enforcement body is you get W's, right? Whether they're wins at trial or they're settlements, and usually settlements. And so there's there's a you know there's a factor one of the factors that I think comes into play a lot in enforcement decisions is you know, like how easy, how easy will this be for me? Right. And we saw this with China where the early China frauds that we and others were exposing in 2000 and through, you know, really tailed off after 2012, these were sloppy and these were low hanging fruit and auditors in China were, you know, willing to resign then. But, um, the, the companies just became hard targets. And so after I'd say 2000, 13 or 2012 even the sec totally lost their appetite to i mean just you know like they're hard right like you have to get a lot of documents translated and then don't even understand the the significance of them because it's a different legal system so you know i think that there's a you know there's basically a cost benefit analysis that they run and i think a lot of times for somebody in enforcement you know career-wise the benefit, you know, the benefit of a hundred thousand dollar settlement, you know, isn't that much less than the benefit of a five million dollar settlement. And, you know, and in in numbers harder numbers higher than that are just harder to get because, you know, the from the company's perspective is the cost benefit. It's like, hey, if they've got more money at stake, that's more money they can throw 
at, you know, at like, you know, trying to stop you in it and at legal. So I think that that's part of, you know, what, what you and at times in the past, I and others have perceived as apathy by um, enforcement. I think that's a big, you know, reason why, you know, I think that they're probably sitting there thinking like, look, man, in a perfect world, we go after these guys. But, you know, in my world, it's just too hard. Hostility toward short sellers. Um, yeah, I mean, look, we, you know, we've done some really avant-garde stuff at Muddy Waters in terms of markets we've gone into internationally and, you know, like challenged some of the most entrenched interests in some of these markets. And so France, uh, we, we publicly shorted one of their large, um, you know, hypermarket chains. And the guy who, you know, the guy who ran that um, was like seriously juiced individual. And um, yeah, like we were rewarded with a, I don't know, four and a half year investigation by the AMF, you know, but at the end of it, the AMF walked away and they became in a way, you know, they, I think we changed their minds because they went to bat for, for us late last year when uh, this other French company that we had shorted um, tried to deplatform me in France, the chairman of the AMF without any prodding from me wrote a letter to the platform, the company and the company's lawyer saying, look, this is inappropriate. This guy should have a voice, but it took, it took seven figures in a lot of years and stress my life to get the AMF there. Germany, similar thing. Germany raked everybody over the coals until Wirecard blew up in their faces. But, you know, I was sitting there the whole time thinking, well, you know, thank God the U.S. has the most sophisticated regulators in the world. Thank God the U.S. has the First Amendment. <laughs> you know, and like, I don't know, man. I'm not sure where things went off track. Um, but, I mean, they're obviously looking at, I mean, there's an investigation uh, with the DOJ and SEC. Look like there are 25 short-selling firms that are, you know, somehow in, involved in this at this point in time. Uh, the, the majority of that are activist short-sellers. And so I would say that those involved in this um, represent a substantial majority of the meaningful short activists there are. It's really like, I'm not going to bullshit you, man. Like it is so disheartening to think that after all of the cases enforcement has made based on our work, the work of other activist short sellers, and we are an industry that the purpose of it, I mean, in many respects is to jump up and down and shout at the regulators. Like, look here, look here you know, this investigation seems to be saying like, well, we feel like as an industry, you guys have been pulling this tremendous Jedi mind trick for the past, you know, like decade or so where, you know, you've been breaking, wantonly breaking the law, you know, while we've been scrutinizing you. And so now we're really going to go after you. So, I mean, look, where does that come from? I mean, the companies, uh, we've known for a few years that companies were spending a lot of money on lawyers. Lawyers had gone to law school with, you know, look at my client. He's such a good fucking guy. Like, you know, he's really fun to play golf with. You know, you, Scott, you know, he's like a scratch golfer. You should check him out. You know, I mean, I feel like a few years of that has basically gotten us where we are right now. Yeah, I mean, look, I'm, you know, I'm a former lawyer, um, you know, so to some extent, I mean, and and I and I'm somebody who has many lawyers in many jurisdictions, and I'm fond of saying nobody lawyers me like me. 
which isn't to say that, you know, we don't use the lawyers to vet things. But um, the thing that I think gets short activists crossed up at times is unknown unknowns. And especially when, you know, they're, you know, they're work that involves a foreign jurisdiction. And I've always been of the mind that we will spend the money. Like, I don't care how much money we need to spend on the research process to get it right. We do it. And a lot of that is dealing with lawyers in foreign jurisdictions because we could be looking at a bunch of documents and say, wow, like, I, I think we, I think we got them. But Again, it's a similar problem to what I was saying the SEC has when they've looked at China. It's like there might be some critical things that we don't understand and we don't understand that we don't understand them. So that's when we, we bring in lawyers in foreign, in foreign jurisdictions a decent bit to say, OK, look, you know, like this is what we're seeing. Tell us, you know, does this seem, you know, does our understanding seem accurate? Like what could we be missing? And, you know, really trying to eliminate unknown unknowns. So I'd say that in our research process, in terms of vetting things, it's not so much the written document that we, that we need the lawyers to review. Although, you know, we certainly have them do that, uh, you know, depending, it's kind of circumstance dependent, but where we really utilize them is in just trying to ensure where we don't have any, you know, that we're making our unknown unknowns that could be material into known unknowns. Yeah, no, very, very good. Again, everybody, please make sure you follow Carson Block. Carson, I appreciate that you uh, spent the hour here. I know it's the first time you're doing Spaces, so hopefully you found it uh, worthwhile. Uh, and everybody that's here, I'll try to do another show tomorrow at noon. And again, please make sure you follow Carson, and I'll see you tomorrow. Cool. Thanks, Thanks. guys. Appreciate it. It's fun. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.